0: What is it that drives some of us to unspeakable acts of cruelty, and others to great shows of compassion? Are we all essentially good inside and corrupted by the world? Or are we dark beings who need constant cultivation to become benevolent to one another? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who scoffs at ghost stories, but also would never be cajoled into spending the night in an old abandoned asylum. You know, just in case. This week, we'll take a tram ride to hell, or at least to a tiny island in the East River between Manhattan and Queens, where inmates of days gone by would have likely told you hell couldn't be much worse. Many intended for this place to be a helpful refuge. But you know what they say about intentions, they lead right to the New York Lunatic Asylum. There is a small slip of land between Manhattan's Midtown East neighborhood and the Queens neighborhood, confusingly named Long Island City just an eighth of a mile wide and a mile and a half long, known as Roosevelt Island. Originally called Minahanunk Island by the Lenape, it eventually became Blackwell Island, thanks to the European colonizers, named for Jacob Blackwell, who had bought the island and whose home was the only manufactured construction on the island until the mid-19th century. The city of New York bought the island from Blackwell in 1828 as a, quote, location for charitable and corrective institutions. Of course, they built a penitentiary first, because everyone knows capital punishment comes before charity. After the penitentiary came plans for the New York Lunatic Asylum, for which they hired famed architect Alexander Jackson Davis, who I can only assume was not cheap. Then again, considering what was to eventually take place inside its walls, I suppose it behooved them to at least make it look like the place wasn't a literal pit of despair. Davis's plan was for a grand U-shaped building, but that had to get scaled way back, presumably due to budget issues. They were like, I mean, yeah, we want it to look nice, but not like that nice. Apparently, the asylum and penitentiary on Blackwell Island were a part of a larger citywide project to push less desirable members of society out of view with other institutions designed for the sick of body or mind or the criminally convicted placed on Ward, Hart, Randalls and Long Island, according to historian and author Kate Braithwaite. Which, though now seems like piss-poor planning, I suppose made a bit of strategic sense. At the time, in 1828, Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital was working sixfold as a hospital, penitentiary, almshouse for the poor, workhouse, a prison for people convicted of minor crimes, and a so-called lunatic asylum. And let me just pause real quick here to make sure it's clear that I am not choosing to use the term lunatic asylum, but that that's what it was referred to back then. And it wouldn't be right to update the phrase to psychiatric hospital, as that would indicate some level of psychiatric care being given. And, as we will find out, that is certainly not what was going on inside this particular institution. At any rate, as the population of the city grew, so did its population of poor, sick, and infirm. And, it seems, rather than actually investing in programs that might help lift people out of poverty or keep them from becoming sick and infirm, or, for that matter, keep them from living in conditions in which they might consider crime their only solution, the city chose to spend money on places to keep the poor, sick, and infirm out of sight and out of mind. According to Stacy Horn in her book Devil's Island, the idea of Blackwell's Island was that it would be an oasis where the sick, infirm, and incarcerated people would frolic about the lush grounds with plenty of fresh air and fruit trees, where they would be treated humanely in a stress-free environment. But also, in addition to the penitentiary and the lunatic asylum, there was a penitentiary hospital, an almshouse, which was the nice way of saying place where we hide poor people so we don't have to be reminded of them because gross, a smallpox hospital, as well as a number of workhouses. In 1872, there were 11 institutions on the island. And I want to remind you, this island was one and a half miles long and not even a mile wide. As for the asylum, it opened its doors on June 10, 1839, with, according to author Stacy Horn, aspirations to administer a new kind of treatment to the mentally unwell patient. They called it moral treatment, which was a science-based treatment as opposed to what psychiatric patients had been used to up to that point, which was the belief that their condition was brought on by lack of faith or by demonic possession and was treated by starvation, bloodletting, straitjackets, prison cells, shackles, and chains. Moral treatment was supposed to be a kinder and gentler approach, incorporating exercise, self-esteem-building exercises, and amusements. The hospital for the psychiatrically afflicted, AKA Blackwell's Asylum, was built to hold 200 patients with women in one wing and men in the other. On opening day alone, 197 patients came through the doors, 116 women and 86 men. Now, here's what's actually insane about this. Apparently, officials didn't realize there would be so many patients, even though every single patient came from Bellevue they knew how many people were in Bellevue, and they knew Bellevue was bursting at the seams, how could it have possibly been that they didn't know they'd get flooded immediately? Like, do a head count, bro. Considering they were likely not expecting that many people that quickly, it's not hard to imagine they didn't have the proper infrastructure in place for that many people. There's not a lot on record of what went on inside the walls of Blackwell's asylum for the first few years. But then, in 1842, Charles Dickens visited the States and made a point of visiting prisons and hospitals. As a prolific novelist that often focused on the plight of the very poor, the subject matter clearly interested him. Through his storytelling, he made solid cases for social reform to better the lives of the worst off in our society. So Dickens was keen on seeing Blackwell's asylum. Dickens was mortified by what he saw at Blackwell's. In a piece he later published called American Notes for General Publication, he seethed.
1: Everything had a lounging listless madhouse air Which was very painful The moping idiot cowering down with long disheveled hair The gibbering maniac with his hideous laugh and pointed finger, the vacant eye, the fierce wild face, the gloomy picking of the hands and lips and munching of the nails, there they were all, without disguise, in naked ugliness and horror. In the dining room, a bare, dull, dreary place with nothing for the eye to rest on but the empty walls. A woman was locked up alone. She was bent, they told me, on committing suicide. If anything could have strengthened her in her resolution, it would certainly have been the insupportable monotony of such an existence." The terrible crowd with which these halls and galleries were filled so shocked me that I abridged my stay within the shortest limits and declined to see that portion of the building in which the refractory and violent were under closer restraint.
0: First off, Dickens' animalistic descriptors here of the patients leave some empathy to be desired, but such were the times, and this was, unfortunately, how people referred to the unwell. And this was the moral treatment. Imagine what the immoral treatment must have been like. The officials at the asylum scrambled to make more room to compensate for the overcrowding, which honestly seems like putting a Band-Aid over a geyser. Like, the overcrowding seemed like the least of the problems at Blackwell's. Apparently, the solution was to hastily build what they called the madhouse for the most violent and disturbed cases. But that, too, was inadequate and ill-planned and designed so that patients were found sleeping in the hallways. Apparently, one of the commissioners, upon visiting the madhouse, declared that it was a disgrace to the institution— I mean, the whole fucking institution was a disgrace to the institution, but okay. So in 1848, the Madhouse was replaced with the Lodge, which was again supposed to be a more humane structure because, you know, they'd gotten the other ones right so far. Another building, called The Retreat, was added to house the more chronic cases, people who were suicidal and people who were noisier than others, but not necessarily violent. The violent patients were sent to the lodge. But wouldn't you know, by 1868, the lodge, which was built with the capacity of 66 patients and which had been built to address the overcrowding of the main building, was housing 190 patients, nearly three times its capacity. Is it just me, or does it seem like they forgot to hire basic mathematicians when designing these institutions? Like, how many stuffed shirt, mutton-chopped, monocle-wearing old white guys does it take to screw in a light bulb? Jeez. In 1872, they built yet another supplemental building to Blackwell's asylum—Jesus, this is exhausting—to try to accommodate the surging population of patients, which was now up to 1,036, and decided to make the whole thing single sex for women only, though apparently 99 men were left behind to work. But here's the thing about shutting people away in institutions. You can make it as big as you want, but if the living conditions and treatment are inhumane, nothing is going to change. Of course, the packed quarters didn't help the situation, but clearly nothing was really being done to address the actual needs of the patients. The conditions at Blackwell's asylum were so bad that the mortality rate rivaled that of the medical hospital on the island. According to HistoryNewsNetwork.com, the hospital served, quote, the poorest and therefore least healthy people in New York City, end quote. So the fact that as many people were dying in the nearby mental asylum is alarming, to say the least. The prevailing belief at the time was that insane women were less manageable than insane men. You know, because of their wacky uteruses and their mysterious, confounding lady brains and all. And the discrimination against Irish people was staggering. Historynewsnetwork.com quotes one physician from Blackwell saying,
1: The majority of our Irish patients are of a low order of intelligence and very many of them have imperfectly developed brains. When such persons become insane, I am inclined to think that the prognosis is unfavorable. In
0: 1879, a pregnant woman was put in a straitjacket and left alone in a cell where she gave birth. Alone. In a straitjacket. Incidentally, for those of you who might wonder why I'm so hard on people from the past, let me just point out that in 2018, a woman was forced to give birth alone in a prison cell in Denver, Colorado. So, you know, those who don't learn from the past and all that. Also in 1879, a night nurse frantically called the doctor to report one patient was bashing another patient's head in. When the doctor arrived an hour later, he refused to move the injured patient to the hospital, bandaged her head and was like, my work here is done and left. The woman died an hour later from her injuries. Most of the deaths at the asylum were a result of the overcrowding and unsanitary conditions. Patients died from infectious diseases like tuberculosis and dysentery. Others died from neglect or from the sheer exhaustion of suffering from an untreated mental health crisis and conditions that could easily cause a mental health crisis. Many patients were carted off to the medical hospital with syphilis, which was probably the correct diagnosis in the first place. Syphilis, if not treated, can lead to major mental health problems. Can we say King George, anyone? Despite the growing number of patients, the asylum was grossly underfunded. The budget for food for each patient was 16 cents a day. That's about $3.60 today for three meals. Needless to say, it was hard to get good doctors to work for whatever pittance was being offered, so most of the medical staff were med students or recent graduates, and as for staff, you ready? They employed convicted criminals from the workhouse on the island to work as nurses and attendants in the asylum. I'm going to let that one sit for a moment. Give it a little air so we can really let it sink in. Listen, I'm not making any blanket statements about convicted criminals, okay? Many convicted criminals were and are upstanding individuals. But just because you can cut corners doesn't mean you should. Underpay prison laborers for the work mental health professionals should be doing? That's no bueno for anyone involved. In 1880, the Senate finally led an investigation into the conditions at Blackwell's Asylum, and despite 900 pages of testimony from investigators, doctors, and religious leaders speaking to the deplorable conditions at Blackwell's, literally nothing was done. Not even a suggestion as to how things might be made better. Somehow they read 900 pages of stuff similar to the things I just outlined, and everyone was like, meh, and walked away. It would be another seven years before someone else would come along and be like, you have got to be kidding me and actually get people to pay attention. In 1887, a young, ambitious writer from Pittsburgh moved to New York City and landed a job with New York World, a popular paper that featured sensational, lurid, splashy headlines peppered in with real hard-hitting journalism. Her name was Elizabeth Cochran, but she went by the pen name Nellie Bly, probably to avoid the 19th century version of Internet Trolls. Bly had made a name, albeit a pseudonymous name, for herself by penning an anonymous response to a misogynist letter in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, in which some dickhead was like, Ugh, my five daughters are unmarried and therefore useless. What are we supposed to even do with unmarried women? The paper's response to the letter was literally, Well, in China, they kill their baby girls, so, you know, just an idea. I'm not kidding. Elizabeth, writing as Orphan Girl, basically wrote in being like, here's a fucking idea. Why don't we give girls as much opportunity as boys, you fucking asshats? But, you know, way more eloquently than that. And the Pittsburgh Dispatch hired her. So far, the same approach has not worked for me with The New Yorker or The New York Daily News or Entertainment Weekly, all of which I've penned angry missives to in response to asshattery. Incidentally, the dispatch was like, here, write about fashion and flowers and shit. And Bly was like, yeah, no, how about I go to Mexico for six months and expose what life is like living under a dictator? And to her boss's credit, they were like, that's, yeah, that's a better idea. Do that one. And that investigative itch stayed with her through her following jobs. Very shortly after beginning at New York World, Bly took an assignment to cover Blackwell's asylum. Her editor was like, you'll have to go undercover and get yourself committed. And basically before he could even finish the sentence, Bly had taken a room at a boarding house and began acting very strangely so they would commit her to Bellevue where she could get transferred to Blackwell's. Whether or not she knew just how bad conditions were there, I don't know, but she knew they were not great. This woman was no fucking joke. And before I continue, I should warn you that if discussions of abuse are triggering for you, you might want to take care during this next section. It must have been a slow news day in New York City because the day Bly got transferred to Blackwell's, the Times ran a story with this headline. A mysterious waif, Bellevue shelters a girl of whom nothing is known. Once she was admitted to Blackwell's, Bly dropped the act and just acted like her regular self. I
2: don't know why she chose this tact, but it didn't seem to matter. She wrote, I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life. Yet strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be by all except one physician, whose kindness and gentle ways I shall not soon forget.
0: Bly's tale of what went on inside the walls of Blackwell's is harrowing, to say the least. Worse than the inadequate and inedible food the patients were forced to eat was the day-to-day treatment they received from the very people
2: who were supposed to be caring for them. She wrote, We were taken into a cold, wet bathroom, and I was ordered to undress. Did I protest? Well, I never grew so earnest in my life as when I tried to beg off. They said if I did not, they would use force, and that it would not be very gentle. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward standing by the filled bathtub with a large discolored rag in her hands. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. I knew now what was to be done with me. I shivered. They began to undress me, and one by one they pulled off my clothes. "'at last everything was gone excepting one garment. "'I will not remove it,' I said vehemently, "'but they took it off. "'I gave one glance at the group of patients "'gathered at the door watching the scene, "'and I jumped into the bathroom with more energy than grace. "'The water was ice-cold, and I again began to protest. "'How useless it all was! "'I begged at least that the patients be made to go away, "'but was ordered to shut up. The crazy woman began to scrub me. I can find no other word that will express it but scrubbing. From a small tin pan, she took some soft soap and rubbed it all over me, even all over my face and my pretty hair. I was at last past seeing or speaking, although I had begged that my hair be left untouched. Rub, 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 went the old woman, chattering to herself. My teeth chattered, and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got, one after the other, three buckets of water over my head, ice-cold water too, into my eyes, ears, my nose, and my mouth. I think I experienced some of the sensations of a drowning person as they dragged me, gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. The patients are washed one after the other, without a change of water. This is done until the water is really thick, and then it is allowed to run out, and the tub is refilled without being washed. The same towels are used on all the women, those with eruptions as well as those without. Bly recounted how
0: nurses would tease and taunt patients until they cried, and when the patients cried, the nurses would tell them to shut up. One incident in particular Bly wrote about ended when the
2: nurses pounced upon her and slapped her face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry the more, and so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. Then they dragged her out to the closet, and I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones. After several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day.
0: Women were made to sit in straight-backed wooden chairs for 12 hours at a time without moving or talking. She asked,
2: What? Accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. And it was
0: sitting on one of these benches out in the yard that she made another discovery. Apparently, the most violent patients were tethered together by ropes fashioned through shackles around their waists and made to pull iron carts, like cattle. These patients, who were kept at the lodge and the retreat, which were just the shiny names for the sparse buildings in which the most violent patients were kept, received the worst treatment— Bly met another patient named Bridget McGuinness, who had spent time on the so-called rope gang, and told Bly, The beating I got there was something dreadful. I was pulled around by the hair, held underwater until I strangled, and I was choked and kicked. The nurses would always keep a quiet patient stationed at the window to tell them when any of the doctors were approaching. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors, for they always said it was the imagination of our diseased brains, and besides, we would get another beating for telling They would hold patients underwater and threaten to leave them to die there if they did not promise not to tell the doctors. We would all promise because we knew the doctors would not help us, and we would do anything to escape the punishment. After breaking a window, I was transferred to the lodge, the worst place on the island. It is dreadfully dirty in there, and the stench is awful. In the summer, the flies swarm the place. The food is worse than what we get in the other wards, and we're given only tin plates. Instead of the bars being on the outside, as in this ward, they're on the inside. There are many quiet patients there who've been there for years, but the nurses keep them to do the work. Among other beatings I got, the nurses jumped on me once and broke two of my ribs. While I was there, a pretty young girl was brought in. She'd been sick and she fought against being put in that dirty place. One night, the nurses took her, and after beating her, they held her naked in a cold bath. Then they threw her on her bed. When morning came, the girl was dead. The doctor said she died of convulsions, and that was all that was done about it. McGinnis also alleged that the nurses would purposefully overdose patients and then refuse them water to treat the severe dry mouth that came with too much morphine or chloral. Another woman told Bly the nurses had strangled her and held her underwater until she was senseless and had beat her head into the floor and pulled her hair out. She apparently showed Bly the marks on the back of her head and her bald spot from where her hair had been torn out. Bly wrote that she'd initially intended on getting herself transferred to the lodge or the retreat to report on the conditions there. But after hearing these stories, she was like, not today, Bob. Bly found that many of the patients at Blackwell were perfectly sane and had been admitted simply because they were poor or couldn't speak English. A young French woman got ill one day, and because she couldn't understand the police officers who were trying to help her, they had her committed to Blackwell. Another woman was committed because her husband said she, quote, had a fondness for other men than himself,
2: end quote. Nellie Bly concluded... People in the world can never imagine the lengths of days to those in asylums. They seemed never-ending, and we welcomed any event that might give us something to think about as well as talk of. There is nothing to read, and the only bit of talk that never wears out is conjuring up delicate food that they will get as soon as they get out. The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, But once there, it is impossible to get out.
0: Bly's story ran in ten installments in New York World, beginning on October 9, 1887, and was a massive sensation. The articles were such a hit that they were immediately compiled and published as a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse. Bly's work had the intended effect, and a month later, a grand jury panel was sent to investigate the asylum. According to Biography.com, word got to the asylum before the panel did, and efforts were made to clean the place up. Many of the patients Bly had quoted in her articles were released or transferred. The place was literally scrubbed clean, and fresh food and water was brought in. Honestly, it's like Mrs. Hannigan trying to clean up the orphanage when Daddy Warbucks shows up. And if this floor don't shine, like the top of
1: the Chrysler building or a wheel. You understand? Yes, Miss Hannigan.
0: Despite their best efforts to be like, oh, human rat trap? Us? Why, I never... The grand jury decided to increase funding for mental health institutions in New York City by $1 million, or $24 million in today money. And, according to Biography.com, quote, "...abusive staff members were fired, translators were hired to assist immigrant patients, and changes were made to the system to help prevent those who did not actually suffer from mental illness from being committed." End quote. And I'll go ahead and pick absolute most basic, common sense decisions you should have made from the start for a 1,000, Alec. Despite doing the bare minimum to improve conditions, Blackwell's asylum closed its doors for good in 1894. The building was renovated and turned into a medical hospital for patients with tuberculosis. In 1921, the island was renamed Welfare Island, yikes. The hospital ran until 1955, at which point it moved across the river and uptown to East Harlem. And then, in 1973, the island was renamed again, this time to Roosevelt Island, in honor of former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And two years later, in 1975, the first non-medical residents of the island since Mr. Jacob Blackwell, way back when, moved in. The main asylum building that saw so much horror and despair sat empty for nearly five decades until 2000 when a private company bought it and developed it into a luxury apartment complex. The building is called The Octagon because people think a building with a name is more fancy than one without a name, I guess, and because the original structure at the center of the hellhole that was Blackwell's asylum was shaped like an octagon. The building, its website tells us, offers eight points of balanced living and is committed to wellness and tranquility and if you believe that may I also suggest that I am qualified to perform your lobotomy which I suggest you get wellness and tranquility Honestly, let me tell you something. If you have the audacity to charge $3,200 to $5,300 a month for a 500-square-foot studio apartment, you are not much better than the fat cats of old-timey New York City who sat getting rich while untold thousands suffered in pits like Blackwell's Asylum. No one paying that much for a postage stamp-sized box to live in is going to feel well or tranquil. Anyway... At least the exorbitant rents come with ghostly visitations and spooky sounds no one can account for. My friend, who has lived on the island his whole life, said they used to hear voices and weird noises when they would venture too close to the building before it was renovated. One resident of the Octagon apartment swears his dog stares at a corner of the ceiling and barks at nothing, and, I mean, so did my grandma at the end of her life, but you don't see me going around claiming there were ghosts in her apartment. In a piece for the now-defunct Village Voice newspaper, Rest in Peace, Leilana Fisher wrote that the ghost of one of the patients of Blackwell's Asylum, a painter and murderer named Carl Andrews, would move in with other artists in the building. A painter friend of hers claimed to have abruptly changed painting styles to a more classic style after moving into the building, and wasn't worried about it until her young daughter, quote, Began delivering messages from the man who lived in her room and who promised not to steal her neck. Nope, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. No thank you, Bob. And in 2019, Reddit user Jaded Felicity posted a long story about weird shit she experienced while living at the octagon. Shadows that didn't seem to have a source, someone who was not her or her roommate walking through the apartment, friends who felt like they were going to be pushed off the balcony by some unseen hand, overnight guests having identical dreams on the same night. It all culminated one night when some invisible entity whispered her name directly into her ear while she was brushing her teeth. Listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I don't believe in ghosts. The thought that our soul or spirit or energy or whatever can, I don't know, get trapped on this plane after we die is far too depressing. I can barely stand to be here as it is and I know my time is fleeting. You think I'm going to spend one second of my afterlife in this garbage dump? Hell no. I like to believe that if there is something else beyond this consciousness, it's just energy. There is no right or wrong, good or evil. Everyone, no matter what kind of existence they've led, returns to the collective, and we are everything and nothing all at once. And in that belief system, which I should say is tenuous to begin with, because honestly, what do any of us know about anything? I can't reconcile the notion of doomed souls wandering this mortal coil trying to find their lost fucking locket, or their mommy, or their dead goldfish Daniel Craig. But I don't know. Pain and despair are deep emotions, as are love and ecstasy. Just as I can't say for sure that we don't get trapped here, I can't say for sure that maybe, when a person experiences such a profound emotion, maybe they leave some kind of stamp, some memory of a feeling. Perhaps the pain all those unfortunate people endured at Blackwell's asylum still swirls around in that spot. Or, if time isn't linear, maybe our timelines get crossed at points and we get a fleeting glimpse of a different time that was before or after and happening all at once. I know I am a gullible skeptic, but after two years of writing about these kinds of things, I'm less sure than when I started. Here's what I do know. Human beings have shown, time and time again, our immense capacity to hurt others because we don't understand them. We put them in cages or cells or behind walls or gates. We deny them their basic human rights. We hang hateful signs off freeway overpasses. We vote for the people who promise that our brand of humanity is the best brand of humanity while laying bare our own profound ignorance and pain. But, we have also shown, time and time again, our immense capacity for empathy and compassion. In small, interpersonal ways like holding a door for someone or returning a lost wallet. And in huge ways that change and shape who we are collectively. Like risking our health and safety to expose abuses toward our fellow humans to affect real change that saves lives. At the end of the day, all we really want is to be treated with humanity and respect. Those thousands of people, mostly women, who were tossed into that evil institution just wanted the same. And most people with authority on that island chose to deny them. That was a choice made over and over every day. Today is the perfect day to choose humanity and respect and kindness. And if you ever do see someone in distress, perhaps just say, I see you, I acknowledge you, and I respect you. Who knows? Maybe that might just do the trick. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. In the heart of St. Louis, Missouri, there stands a mansion from a bygone era that was home to more tragedy than one family should ever have to endure. Some insist that family still haunts its halls to this day. We'll discover what secrets the Lemp Mansion holds. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca D. Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram. We are at snu pod, And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation.